Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Welcome to Synapse, Think Tank of the Air, featuring influencers, creatives, and thought leaders in the Twin Cities. And now, here is our host, Steve LeBall. And welcome to the very first edition of uh, Synapse, Think Tank of the Air. And I have uh, some very big thinkers here today for you. We have Kelly Grayler from Alice Riot. We have Alok Sharma, an attorney with Stinson Leonard Street, and Thong Nguyen with Rumera, which is We'll hear more about that later. And the idea here is to, to uh, exchange ideas over a discussion and uh, see what we come up with. We're, it's kind of an exploration discussion, combination of socialization, cogitation, and uh, kind of quasi-radio here on the podcast. We'll start with Kelly. Kelly, tell me, what's your story? I thought you were going to start with the lawyer, Steve. <laughs> Fine. Okay, I'll go first. Uh, Kelly Grayler, um, well, you know my story very well, but obviously your listeners don't. So... Um, I am a uh, classically trained public relations strategist who spent about 22 years inside corporate America and got to the top in the C-suite and decided I hated it. A C-suite, like, like chief information chief, officer? Chief, well, no, those are the really smart people in IT. This was the chief communications officer. Oh, role. okay. So the voice of the company, what's our, what's our story, what's our narrative? And I didn't care for being operating at that level. Far too many politics – um, a lot of things that would get in the way of really good progress. Uh, and it where wasn't was, for where me. was this at? That was at Berkshire Hathaway Energy okay. in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, great people, but just not a, a culture where I wanted to spend eight hours of my day, actually more than eight hours of my day. Ah. So so I was uh, in the process of uh, talking with recruiters and looking for my next job, uh, which actually never happened. I've been working on my own ever since. <laughs> I've had that job. But in the midst, in, in, at the time when I was talking with recruiters, I was um, – Spending a lot of time looking at my wardrobe and the clothes that I would wear at work and the clothes I would wear into interviews and found I, I had a very monochromatic wardrobe and a lot of black, like a lot of women at work do, and um, was inspired by an Instagram post by my now business partner, Kate Iverson, who's an artist here in the Twin Cities, one of her abstract paintings. And I said, I'd like that as a skirt. And three years later, we uh, just wrapped our Indiegogo campaign, raised our first round of funding for Alice Riot, and we launched our first collection in our online store this summer. And are you wearing an Alice Riot dress I now? I am wearing an Alice Riot dress right now. Okay, who's good at visuals? Uh, Thunk, can you describe her dress? <laughs> it's amazing. Thank you. It is something like what you would see in art, right? It is art on its own. Yes. Okay, well, I'll fill in the colors. It's uh, kind of a black and white uh, thing and little spots of yellow. And it is abstract because I could not identify it. <laughs> That's good. Okay. That's the whole point. The whole point is that a woman can wear this to work and she brings the story of the artist with her. And it's, you know, if, if you think of, you know, you can see a great painting at MoMA and there will be a limited number of prints that are created that are high quality. In this case, the prints are something that a woman can wear. Okay. Not hang on Wearable art. Wearable art. Okay. Uh, uh, Hey, look, what's your story? Well, that's a tough act to follow, right? Especially when you talk about the lawyer in the room. Well, let's see. He's wearing a <laughs> But at least gray we know you're suit. prepared, yeah. so yeah. that's good. I did come prepared. A gray suit with a kind of a blue striped shirt. 
typically lawyers are very much a uh, blue or white shirt, and, and, that, and that's about it to the extent of our wardrobe. But uh, we try to be interesting in other ways. Uh, so, for example, I, I grew up in Alabama, and most people wouldn't know that from talking with me. And uh, I'm an attorney of color, so uh, you can imagine growing up in Alabama uh, could be hard for someone who is a person of color. And so, you know, people always ask, well, how did you become a lawyer? And, and it, it's kind of funny. You know, I, I grew up a huge sports fan, especially in Alabama. You grew up rooting for the Crimson Tide or, or the Auburn Tigers, depending on, you know, which family you grew up in. I, I'm a Crimson Tide fan, so, so, don't, so don't fault me. Um, but, you know, that growing up, you always found that, you know, if you wanted to be success, successful at sports, it was always hard work and talent, right? And that's, if you had both of those things, you know, you were going to win on the field. And the law is kind of the same way, especially in, in terms of litigation, right? I kind of view my job as if I have the facts on my side and I have the law on my side, I'm going to have the really good results that make my clients happy. And so you kind of find sort of this the symbiotic relationship between the two. And so it was easy for me to kind of become a lawyer growing up as a huge sports fan and being an athlete in college. You know, I, I compete at the Division One level. In in what? I was a track runner, and I ran cross country. So for track, I used to tell people, yeah, I, I run fast and I turn left, and that's about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> cross country was a little bit different, right? It's, it's through the hills and uh, sometimes over the water. And, and uh, that was exciting too. But, you know, you know that was a long time ago. <laughs> and I've put, I've put on a few pounds and uh, don't get to exercise much, obviously, but I still have the passion for it, right? And, and so I've kind of transitioned – uh, part of my practice to to dabble in some of these sports and entertainment areas. And so, uh, you know, uh, right now is a really exciting time for, for the sporting world, right? You have the uh, you have the sport Supreme Court case that's going to allow for sports betting to exist at the state level. I mean, we could talk about that for hours. But, uh, yeah, I, I kind of had this niche uh, sports and enter- entertainment practice, a lot of that does uh, venture into the emerging marketplace for these entrepreneurs that are coming in and taking over the marketplace. So, uh Kind of my story. Hmm. Well, thanks, Alok. And then here's an entrepreneur taking over the market. Okay, let's hear now from uh, Thong Nguyen, who runs Rumera, a virtual reality business. Yes, and we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, so my story actually goes all the way back to when I was a kid. So uh, second grade, right? Got my first computer. And back then, technology wasn't even in school, so nobody knew what these computers were. And so at a very young age, I think I was six at the time, got my hands on this computer, thought I was going to make games for everybody. And I, interestingly enough, just instinctively started building things, sharing that, and selling them to my classmates for a dollar a copy. And this was when I was six. What I didn't know at the time was the discs that I sold it on cost $4, but you know, <laughs> hey, that'll come later in life, right? But I think um, there's things that we go through very, when we're very young, and we just do it because it feels right. And my life actually took me very far away from that. I spent the last 15 years in corporate, uh, moving up a ladder, leading you know, successively larger teams, Fortune 500 companies. In my last role, I had a team of about 200 people globally, and changes happened at the company, and it was going out a direction where I didn't feel like this resonated with who I was. And so at that point in time, you know, virtual reality was becoming a thing. And so I started dabbling with it on the side, and it reminded me of childhood, where I was actually creating something that felt real to other people. And so that's o- kind of— Only it wasn't. Only it wasn't, right? It's, it's software, but it's software that people can feel. And so it's interesting because we'll talk more about it, but I think um, t- 
technology now is very different than technology was when I was a kid. Hmm. But as a society as a whole, we're still trying to figure out where it's taking us. So I think that's what's really exciting for me in that space. And that's part of my story is how can we actually use technology to help us see what that future might look like? Hmm. Well, that's all very interesting. Thank you. And now we'll proceed with the the kind of heavier content. I was thinking my job is try to figure out what does all these have in common. And part of it is is the image that people have, the image that people see. I mean, Kelly, I know when when, – my best example, if you look at me now, you know I know nothing about fashion. But I remember when I played football in high school, once I put the uniform on and the helmet, I felt ready. There's something about what you're wearing that makes you feel ready for something or not ready. Yes. The the only thing I heard about a good fashion tip is that if you're confident in what you're wearing, you will look good. I would agree. There was a a piece that Business Insider uh, published a couple of weeks ago, and it was the like nine nevers that you should do at work in terms of you know what you wear. You know these don'ts in fashion, and I took real exception with a couple of them. One was leopard print. Another one was sequins. And this article was saying don't wear those, and I'm like, which. What guy wrote this story? This is, you know, ridiculous. Some guy that never wore leopard skin. Maybe he should. He should try it. But the point is, is that I've seen very successful executives, female, rock both of those in the office, in the conference room, in the boardroom. They look great. And it, it, it doesn't come off as something ostentatious or flashy. It's something that she's comfortable wearing. And so we we ended up taking that that Business Insider piece and put it on, on our LinkedIn page and said, BS on um, items, you know, five mm. and nine. The point here is if you feel good wearing it, wear it. Hmm. Yes, you know, be appropriate. I mean, the dress codes exist for a reason. And I can tell you some horror stories from my Best Buy days and what you'd see showing up at corporate. But if, if you're comfortable and you feel confident wearing it, it's a part of your persona, your personal brand as a leader. Go for it. Why do lawyers wear bow ties so often? I mean, I don't know of any other occupation that wears bow ties. And they're proud to wear them. Because sometimes they make us look skinnier. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a long time. The suspenders, since you know, elongate the torso. That's so. right. They wear suspenders too. <laughs> suspenders and bow ties. Yeah, and, but that's changing too. You know, I and you know, in my spare time, I've taught a class in, in the University of Minnesota Law School, and you do see those trending, you know, those changing trends on how to to dress in the courtroom or to dress in a corporate environment. You know, a lot of law firms have gone to a dress for your day kind of. Uh, attire, right? So if you're not going to see any clients, feel free to wear sneakers and jeans. But uh, if you're going to be in the courtroom, you need to dress appropriately. And, and, you know, we go back to these law students. You have these people who, you know, this is going to be their first job, right? They're 23, they're 24 years old, they're coming into the into the legal world, they're in the courtroom, they're, you know, they have a lot of questions about what to dress. So, um, you know, for example, we do see a lot more women in, women in the law. And you have a lot of judges and you have a, a lot of uh, older attorneys who are like, I don't know how to tell a uh, a, you know, a fashionable young woman, how to dress in the courtroom. Like, what are the standards for women to dress? I mean, we, a lot of people struggle with that. Um, and so I typically, you know, when I tell my law students, you know, um, you know, I try to tell them, keep it professional, um, especially, you know, uh, for those judges that are not in the Twin Cities, right, who are not so hip and fashionable and maybe they don't see attorneys all the time uh, or they do see attorneys all the time, but they're local attorneys. So I tell them, you know what, uh, Blue or white shirt, red or blue tie, you'll be okay no matter where you go, right? And 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 that's kind of a that's a tough place to be because you you know you have these people who are younger who have grown up in a different uh, time frame and you're trying to teach them how to 
to fit into this new marketplace, right? Uh, but yeah, it, it's it's a tough environment, and, and it's nice to see people pushing the boundaries or bringing new ideas and how to make it make it work. Hmm. What one of the another place where image plays a role in uh, law, and I, I I heard they used to sh- show the movie Rashomon in law school, where it's a Japanese film by Akira Kurosawa about a crime, crime of rape, and it's told from three different angles, and each angle is totally different. So it's kind of like framing in journalism. You can frame something and it'll be a totally different story. Uh, do you learn about multiple realities in, in law school? or? or uh... I, I think, you know, as a lawyer, you're always going to be challenged to think about things from a different perspective. Um, you know, the way we view things as lawyers is very different from the way that a jury might view things, right? Uh, and so here's a good example. You know, we, we do mock jury trials all the time. We, we present... Uh, our facts and our evidence to a, a group of people who literally think that they're in a real courtroom and that this is a real trial. And after the trial is over, we tell them, you know, this wasn't the real thing. Surprise. Uh, but give us feedback and let us know what you think. What did you see that we that we did that maybe that was not so great? And some of the things that the jury will tell you will really shock your conscience, right? So uh, I, I we had a case where we brought in some uh, – some folks from out of town, and we had a jury from, you know, the East Coast, and they dressed a little too flashy. And because of that, the jury thought that they had a lot of, you know, that this defendant didn't need the money or this plaintiff didn't need the money because their lawyer, mm. they hired a really flashy lawyer, right? So the lawyer's conduct, the way that the lawyer dressed, reflected poorly on their client. Because mm. uh, I've always seen it on TV. You'll see the guy arrested, and it looked like a total bum, and then you see him walk into the courtroom, and he looks like he's, you know, on some reality TV show about to marry somebody, and, and you know, I, as a lawyer, I'm gonna I want to look nice. I'm about to you know walk into a courtroom. I'm going to be in front of twelve unknown people who are serving as a jury. But you have to remember the way that they view things is very different than the way that you view things. Uh, so we do play in these different realities, right? Um, you know, not everyone's a lawyer. Not everyone has a secondary degree. You know, not everyone grew up in Minnesota. There's these different viewpoints that you have taken into consideration. Hmm. Uh, so we do, we do dabble in that space, maybe not in the same way that Tong does or the way that uh, other folks do, but we do have to. Well, uh, getting into virtual reality, Thong, he had me over there a couple times to experience it. I've never, I had never experienced it before, and it's unbelievable. First, it's it's first. There's the novelty of it, where you're in a room and you press a button, and all of a sudden you're on the other side of the room. But it seems like a real room, and then it can populate it with people to see how crowded it might look. But then he had a thing where I'm on the top of a tall building and I'm at the very edge and it's like, um, why don't you cross this board to the other tall building? And it's like, no way, I'm going to fall down. You look over and you're, you get scared. You, 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 the, the part of your mind that knows you're in a room with these glasses on is gone. What you have is this reality where if you look over, everything is done so perfectly. You, can, you have the sense of depth that, hey, I'm going to die if I do this. And so I, I walked over the board, and I made it to the other side, and I thought, you know, I can do this. I can just gut myself over. And then he said, okay, we're going to make the board more narrow. Now walk back. And it's like, oh, crap. And then I, 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 I walked back, but my knees were shaking. My knees were shaking. Okay, now let's walk over the smaller board. No way. No way. I won't do that. It's too scary. And I took off the glasses, and, and your, your body is physically scared. There, maybe it's the, 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 your reptile brain kicking in. But Thong, what the hell's going on with this, uh, this reality you have going? <laughs> um, we do a lot of work with trying to understand unconscious behavior. 
Um, so if you think about what you experienced, right, when you are up on a building, people can tell you what that building is. They can tell you it's 14 stories. They can tell you that the wind is blowing and that there's people walking on the sidewalk below. But your brain, listening to the words, doesn't understand it the same way, right? The, the percentage of your brain that gets engaged with words is very different than when you're actually experiencing it directly yourself. And so a lot of the work we do is actually reinforcing words with experiences. So if you think about storytelling and trying to get somebody to understand something, I mean, this is the heart of communication, right? How do you drive empathy for a situation or an environment that they may or may not understand themselves? So you put them there, you tell the story, but then you evoke these emotions. And VR is an interesting communications channel, and that's the way we actually look at it. We look at it as a way to give people context, right, in that it would take half an hour to explain maybe what the environment's like. And I think there's connections potentially to court cases in the legal room because I think a lot of that is storytelling as well, right? You're trying to get people to understand a context. And I think the challenge with storytelling today is when you're telling a story, what comes to mind for the people listening? It's what they already know. Right? They're bringing their own stories into the picture. I think what's different about VR is we can actually create shared storytelling. Right, So it's not just me telling the story. I can be in the story with you, and I can start validating that your story is the same story that I'm trying to tell. So we're doing a lot of work in that space around really immersive storytelling and how do you drive understanding at a subconscious level. Hmm. There's There's stories. I mean... How, Kelly, how long in PR has it been, we want to tell your story, and then it's the same thing. You're trying to create an image and all these connotations in people's minds, and, and uh, I, I am, I'm almost storied out, except that I think there's something uh, uh, in our DNA. I, I, think, I think storytelling is, is the foundational principle for good public relations, and I think that no matter what is hot and trendy in terms of integrated marketing or social media, the story and the narrative is that constant. I think the thing that's really interesting – that I'm hearing Thong say is um, long time ago, um, back when I was at Padilla, the PR firm here in town it, at the time was called Padilla Spear Beardsley, the late Tom Bartikoski, who was a, a tremendous public affairs strategist. He said, you know, we, we all the time, we are so worried about what we want to say. We forget that we need to think about what people need to hear. And that's the real cusp of public relations is, are you delivering a narrative and a story where people can see themselves in that story? And, you know, obviously with PR, you're working with words. I'm fascinated by the idea of VR as a storytelling platform and what are those implications for not only, you know, brand experiences like, hey, you know, Black Friday at Best Buy, what are the implications for issues management? You know, if we're having a, a real challenge around, you know, pick any topic – that's a challenge for a business, um, community engagement, climate change, what have you, put yourself in, I mean, I'm just thinking right now, even like with Alice Riot, I mean, we are communicating with our manufacturer in Hong Kong, and we've got a great connection with them. I would love to have VR as a means to like experience one another and not just be relying on the words that we're exchanging on the phone. We're going to be talking more about the implications of virtual reality when we come back to Synapse Think Tank of the Year.
Synapse, Think Tank of the Air. We'll be back in a moment. We're back with Synapse, Think Tank of the Air. I'm Steve LeBeau, your host. Our guest today, Kelly Grayler from Alice Riot. And a bunch of other things in her past, her deep, long past. Alok Sharma, an attorney with Stinson Leonard Street, although he knows things beyond the law. Not illegal things, but just beyond the law. And we're also here with Tong Thong Nguyen. He runs Rumera, and uh, he's the one that introduced me to the wonders and dangers of virtual reality. And it can be used... Uh, we're, we're talking, it's just beginning. I think this is just about the time when uh, technology is so strong. That I, I remember, oh, maybe uh, 20 years ago, I was doing video production, and we tried to, you know, uh, do something called rendering, where you would just do some sort of uh, um, a change, some visual change, cartooning or something on video, and it would take like two days. Sorry, we're rendering. It's like you could leave it in your uh, return mailbox for the next week. But now it's so fast. Is, it, are the possibilities getting even broader each day? It, uh, it sometimes gets overwhelming when you start to think about where things could go. Um, I mean, to your point, right, you used to have to wait for these things, digital film, digital cameras, right? Like the, the time it takes to get results and to get that dopamine hit, that this is you know tying the results back to the action that you took, that's getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And I think that, that has enormous implications to technology down the road in terms of expectations. So if you think about today, customer expectations, nobody wants to wait. They want results right away. So I think it, for me, it's actually, I tend to think about VR beyond the technology. I think about it as how is human behavior evolving as a result of uh, the, the speed of conditioning? Evolving or devolving? Uh, you could look at it either way, right? Um, with specifically with uh, digital technology today, is that making us more human or less human? Is that driving more social connections with quality, or is that reducing the quality of our connections? I think that's a whole other topic. Hmm. And then a big part of it, uh, a big area that you're not in is entertainment. I think Alok, tell me about how virtual reality could ex- uh, could change our experience of sports. Yeah, I mean it's it's sports and entertainment, right? So if you asked Every major uh, sports league, what is the biggest trouble facing their industry? It's declining TV viewership, right? So uh, you ask the NFL, you know, they'll say, well, this is because of the, the national anthem controversy going on with the president. But the reality of it is that the NFL viewership has been declining for, for several years. And, and the reality that, that the leagues are starting to wake up is, is that uh, they need to find new areas to engage fans, right? So people aren't coming to games as they used to. No one wants to sit and watch a four-hour game with replays anymore like they used to, right? Uh, there's an interesting t- statistic out there that says that, you know, your average non-betting football fan will watch about 16 games over the course of the season, which typically, you know, if you're a Vikings fan or a Packers fan, that, that's your whole season, right? Uh, if someone is a betting per- is a person who bets on football games, they'll watch over 50 games a year. Hmm. So what is, I mean, that means additional advertising revenues. That means additional TV viewership. So you want to find ways to engage fans, uh, VR is a way to do that, right? We we want to bring the game home. Uh, so, you know, you can think of a scenario where it might make sense to allow that fan, that casual fan who can't maybe get, get into, uh, 
you know, game six between the Cavaliers and, and the Warriors, right? Maybe you can charge a small fee and someone puts on a VR headset and all of a sudden they're at the game at home, right? Uh, and it kind of meets both demands, right? The game, everyone's going to want to be at game six uh, so that you don't have to worry about people, you know, not showing up to the stadium. People are going to fill up that stadium. Uh, now you get to reach fans in a different way at the home. You get to increase viewership. You increase uh, fan engagement, which now increases loyalty to the fan base. Uh, these are things that the leagues need to start considering, and they have. I mean, Major League Baseball has a VR app. Uh, uh, some of the other leagues are starting to look into it, right? Uh, this is a really uh, great growth opportunity for, for those leagues. Uh, now, there's obviously a lot of legal considerations about what goes on with that, uh, but we can get into that later. Boy, could, <laughs> could you have it fixed up so that you could uh, create the reality around the quarterback and have the quarterback's viewpoint, and, and you could – you know, quarterback minus one, you could be the quarterback? Yeah, so uh, no, you don't need to look any further than how gaming has progressed in the past 10, 15 years, right? There are games now where you are the quarterback and you're playing through the lens of them. And I see an interesting convergence between what's been happening within the gaming spaces and real life. It used to be that only gamers played games. But now with social gaming and more casual gaming, you see that's kind of get infused into society as it is. Casual gamers? Casual gamers like, you know, uh, Candy Crush, just something bored on the bus, you know, something to keep your mind engaged. But I actually think that gamification isn't something new. It's been actually getting more integrated into daily life. And the, the reality there is that you don't always realize you're playing a game, but that's how your mind is actually engaged with hmm. activity. Well, See, I think that's really interesting. You said gamification, and my mind went instantly back into corporate, where gamification would be thrown out as a strategy for something, but it never left the PowerPoint slide. It, it was something that was brought up as this big, hey, audacious idea, and then they go and do something really basic instead. Yeah. But that's interesting. And, and I think that point is often missed, right? Gamification is about, isn't about making it a game. It's about, about actually understanding how to drive engagement. Right. right. What are the rules and systems that drive, you know, cognitive and emotional engagement from a person? Games, as we know it today, engage a certain de- demographic, and you can see how addictive that those games have become. Can we use that lens to look at how experiences are created today? Right. What are the engagement factors? And I think there's such an interesting separation between those worlds, and people haven't necessarily made that connection yet. Well, things are getting so comp. I, when I was a kid. I would walk down the sidewalk and try not to step on a crack. You know, that was my game. You know, you step on a crack, you break your mother's back. So it's it's something to do. But but now it's so much more manifold. Are, are either anyone here, do you play video games or the online games? Yeah, I, I play video games. I mean, uh, you know, I dabble in what's called eSports, right, which is video game sports. It's professional professional video gaming, right? Uh, every Big Ten university offers now a scholarship for gaming. Right, you can yes. you can go to school for it. You can be, you can play at the University of Minnesota and play on their esports team, and you know one day you can switch to the Big Ten Network and you could watch literally the University of Minnesota play Northwestern University, and and they could be playing a game called League of Legends, or they could be playing mm-hmm. a game called the Overwatch League, uh, which is a game called Overwatch. Uh, so, what role do you play in this game? What do you do? You know, you know, let's let's talk about uh, the, for example a game that I play is called Rocket League. 
it, it's uh, it's three on three soccer, but you are in cars and you drive, you fly in cars. It's car. It's it's soccer with cars, and, and you laugh, but you know, and the game is free. Actually, I just don't want to be the goalie. Well, yeah, you don't want. Nobody wants that responsibility. <laughs> but I mean, this game is free. But the way I mean, this game makes millions and millions of dollars a year on this freemium model, right? We talk about the gamification of things. Um, you know, what we can talk about these in-game avatars, right, or what people will call skins. Uh, you know, those those are very expensive. Um, you know, for, let's talk about one game, for example, Counter-Strike Go. It, it's a first-person shooter. You run around and you wear, you know, you're you're running around the game's kind of like Halo, and your character can wear a purple jacket, right? And so what the game manufacturer, who's a company called Valve, what they'll specifically do is they'll say, we'll only make 100 jackets. And to buy a jacket, it costs 10 tokens. And, of course, 10 tokens doesn't necessarily equal $10. Yes. And then what they do is that, you know, what happens for kids is these, you know, typically kids are playing these games and they say, you know, I really wanted a purple jacket, but they only made 100. What we'll do is we'll say, winner of this match gets the purple jacket. And now that purple jacket has value, right? And people are, you know, children are gambling on these uh, in-game skins. And the game manufacturers know this is happening, but it keeps... And the parents who have their credit cards tied to the Xbox subscription <laughs> know when it's happening as well. Right. Well, Kelly, at I, least my I, son is, is good about asking permission before he does it, because he knows I'm going to come at him if I see a charge without... I, I, I just imagine yeah. making you an abstract art uh, purple jersey to sell it, and, <laughs> and then develop a game around your clothing line. Oh, and people... And it's funny that we're talking about clothing, because, you know, if you... There are people that own teams, and how do they... How do those teams... How do they monetize owning a team? Right now, it's through uh, what the, the fabrics that they're wearing, the sponsorships. Uh, you know, you have official, you know, jackets for these teams, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how they're making these money through the, these sponsorships and what they're wearing. You know, this is really fascinating because, and, and, and I'm not kidding, my son turns 16 tomorrow, and his first career declaration when he was like eight or nine is he wanted to play video games when he grew up, and that was it. This is career. And what's really interesting is he's he's a fantastic baseball player. He's a, he uh, vacillates between second base and shortstop, and but at the same time he also loves esports. Big Fortnite fan. Halo. I mean, we've had Halo stuff for years, and you know he's always been like, "Hey, mom, look at how you know, look at this skin on my Halo guy, and you know, Master Chief or whatever." And and it's it's in his in his world at his age, these aren't you know like optional things. He spends more time on his Xbox than anything else. And I look at him and say, you've never been in trouble. You haven't been caught drinking. You're not out, you know, his, the way that he and his peers gather and spend time together is virtual. So they're not and, out on the And they're street. not out going to the mall. They're not out on the street. They're, they're getting online. And, you know, on, on the one hand, you can look at that and be concerned that he's spending too much time playing. On the other hand, I'm like, he's getting amazing social time and learning how to, Learning how to work with other people because they're playing on teams together and they're not always getting along. There, there is a surprising amount of teamwork that goes on in these games. So there's a game out there called Destiny. Yes, uh, he has and, that too. And there's this there's this version in the game called the Raid, right? And you have to it's six people on a team, and you have to go you know battle an AI character. But those missions take several hours. There's several puzzles that take place. So you know, for example, like the analogy I give is. You know, to get onto the other side of a door, people have to stand on different plates in in, in the map, right? So it's like, okay, uh, person A, you go stand on that plate in that corner, and person B, you go stand, and you're talking, you're having this conversation, 
in order to achieve an objective. It's no different than, you know, calling a, a play from the shotgun and, and having your running back run out to the, uh, you know, calling an audible and having him run down the side of the field. I mean, you're doing the same thing, but you're doing it in the virtual world. You are. And I, and I have to say, as a parent, there are times when I'm very frustrated because I'll say, hey, it's 9 o'clock, time to shut off the Xbox. I can't. <laughs> what do you mean you can't? Well, we're in the middle of this game, and I, I can't leave, let my friends down, and I need 10 more minutes. And it, it's interesting how committed he is to this. And it's not to be disrespectful to me. It is truly, Mom, we are like, Almost there. We've got to solve this problem. He's, I need more time. He's in another reality. He's and but he's thinking of it very differently than, oh, he won't turn off the TV or stop watching the TV show. It's a different, it's it's a different mindset for him. Hmm. I wonder uh, different realities. I mean, here we are. If you look outside and you turn off your Xboxes, uh, our world is so divided these days. You know that people are 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 literally in different realities. They have their echo chambers. If you're blue, you listen to blue radio and TV. If you're red. Um, how does that fit in? Is there any way we can use virtual reality to break down these other realities, or is it yet another escape? Yeah, so we do a lot of experimentation around that. So how do you bridge realities? And we were actually having a a sidebar conversation around this earlier, but how often is it that you actually view view life through somebody else's perspective, right? We are, as human beings, naturally focused on our own perspective. And what VR allows you to do is effectively put you in somebody else's body, right? And the narrative that you start to see when you look down and your skin color is different, or I don't think I showed you this one, but I I can put you in a person of the opposite gender's body. Really? And the interesting thing, and we've been doing some testing around this, is let's say you start interacting with somebody else and you're not in your own body, now it's not just your perception of your own body, it's how somebody is treating you and behaving towards you. A social reality. A social reality, right? And so they're applying their own reality onto this reality that's completely artificial. And as a person, when somebody starts treating you in this way and you're like, wow, I've never been treated this way before, you start to put these pieces together that you, know, you wouldn't otherwise have any context for. And so, you know, some, some implications of this are like, you know, gender training, harassment yes. training, things like that, where if you can put your, somebody in somebody else's shoes and have them feel what it's like to be in that person's shoes, how would that change things? Well, you think about, um, you know, museum experiences and memorials are designed to, to you know, engender empathy in, 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 in the struggles of someone else. I mean, I, I, what you're just talking about here, my mind instantly went to the Holocaust Museum, the Imperial War Museum in London. that has It was the precursor to the Holocaust Museum in D.C., the Lynching Museum in Alabama. Absolutely. Can you imagine if there was a VR component to that where you are a person who is about to be lynched by an angry mob? Yeah. What that would, I mean, that would just be, I mean, you talk about your knees shaking, trying to walk across a board. Right. I mean, that would just be terrifying. I mean, these could be I'll I'll tie this back to gaming too, right? Because I think this is really important. So the narrative that, you know, your kid is living through in these games is so powerful that he sometimes can't even pull himself away from that, right? Right. They're teaching him things. And so the question that I'm, I've been raising and thinking about is, like, these games are teaching these kids all of these things, right? They're, it's 
really a, a much more engaging way to learn. Right. And it's a virtual world that helps them learn things. What are these games teaching kids? And can we bring those worlds together where they are learning about history? They're learning about reality as it was, right? Applying these real-world skills to a medium that actually engages them rather than, you know, gets them bored. And I think as a society, we have to start thinking about that. Otherwise, education as it is is going to become obsolete. Kids are just going to play games all day. So, I, you know, the lawyer, of course, has to play a little bit of devil's advocate in the room. So here's something that... I've seen or I've read about that's problemat- or at least problematic for, for some of these industries is that it gives you a little bit of anonymity, right? Like you, you now have a, sort of a, a blank check to be a bad actor in these worlds because nobody knows who you are, right? And mm-hmm. so you do, see, you, you do have to be conscious of that if you are an entrepreneur in the space and you're saying, I want to create this social media platform where we can have interaction through VR. We want people to interact in a way, but then you have to make sure that, you know, uh, you know, you, you know, when you open the door, you're going to let the bad actors in with the good actors too. And you have to figure out a way to police that, right? So uh, Twitter, for example, has a social media policy that they go and ban people who are uh, injecting hate speech. Uh, but, you know, but what, Certain, but, yeah. but what is hate Not speech? Not everyone, but well, close. But right, yeah. but, but, but what is hate speech, right? And, and, and is it your job as the, the developer or the product to, to, to control that? And at what point do you start... Uh, you know, punishing certain views that should maybe have a right to be able to challenge some of those things that, that you know, these, you know, these, conce- you know, notions that we have about how society should behave, right? So there is a little bit of a danger to this that I think people are starting to see. And we saw it in the election with false news or fake news or, uh, or harassment we saw. But, you know, Facebook's doing the same thing right now. How do we control this platform that is really a good product that should be for the good of society, but... You know, when you let the good people in, you also let the bad people in. This has happened throughout the history of every advance in technology. There's always been these high hopes. Uh, when they first did the, the transatlantic cable for telegraph, people were saying, finally, we'll be able to communicate with the world. We'll have, have this understanding of ideas. We'll no longer have wars and all this stuff. There were, there were huge idealistic spiels going on. And then I think it was Ralph Waldo Emerson said, look, uh, we'll get that transatlantic cable, and the first thing will be, Oh, the the princess uh, has a whooping cough over in the uh, you know in London, and kind of that's happened every t- when when radio came on they had the same glorified ideas when they had uh, television when when the uh, cable TV came on okay oh, we'll have these public access cable TV things and it will just change the dynamic of reality. So now we're here at a new front with virtual reality. We can change the way people think and see, but then it goes back to you know. Who knows what they'll actually do with it? It's kind of a, a neutral medium, and we'll have to uh, we'll take a look at some of these ideas when we return to Synapse Think Tank of the Air. Synapse Think Tank of the Air. We'll be back in a moment. And we're back with Think Tank of the Air. I'm Steve LeBeau, and our guests today are Kelly Grayler from Alice Riot, and who knows how many other things so maybe we'll find out. Alok Sharma, attorney with Stinson Leonard Street, and uh, Thong Nguyen with Rumera, running virtual reality. I mean, talking about all these virtual realities, if you reverse that, it's like inside us, we're all these different personalities. And depending on your situation, one comes out, one comes uh, one is refrained, you act a certain way in school, a certain way in court, hopefully, right? in a certain way when you're trying to make a big sale. Um, 
So, Kelly, I'm going to put you on the spot. How many personalities do you have? Just can you do they fill both all the fingers in your hands? You know, I actually I'm not sure I necessarily agree with your proposition there. So <laughs> I, I'm this is I'll, I'll, let me tell you a quick story. When I was in college, my best friend and I were roommates our senior year. And she's to this day, she's our son's um, godmother. And she had a point of view about work. And she's like, I'm just going to get a job and I want to spend eight hours a day making money. And then I will live my life on the rest of the hours. And I didn't agree with that. And to this day, I still don't. If I'm going to work on something, I want to be the same person working as I am living. And so I'd like to think that I have one personality and I may have to turn on more charisma if I'm giving a presentation or I may need to be more thoughtful about what I'm saying, like if I've got a microphone in my face, but I'm still the same person as I am when I'm at home binge watching Netflix. So, Well, well personality just in my defense, it goes back to the Greek word for mask. I mean, you wear different masks in different situations. It's the same person, but different uh, faces. Sure. Okay. Well, in that case, I, I'm a mother. I'm a wife. I'm a strategist. I'm an entrepreneur. Um, I am um, a, a gym rat, a wannabe gym rat. Um, I'm a reader. I'm a... Uh, I'm someone who should have been a VJ for MTV. That was my dream job. That was your job? You know, so, I mean, there are there are a lot of things. Yeah, there are a lot of, I guess, different facets to my personality, but I'd like to think that I'm I'm authentic right. from you one have, to the next. You have, you're, you're integrated. In other words, it's not like you have a split personality where, where some of them only come out when you're under, you know, right. different narcotics or something. Right. But also what I meant was tell us some of the other projects you're working on that you so, uh, so the d- well, right, diversity because, of your person. Right. I mean, I st- I st- it's funny. Someone uh, wrote a blog post a couple of weeks ago that um, named me, along with two others, as a former PR pro, someone who had left the profession entirely, and I thought it was a bit extreme. Um, I mean, I still do um, uh, consulting for a number of clients, um, you know, strategic communications, issues management, um, crisis communications, so that I still do that work. I also, um, a couple of years ago, when I was finally, it was the thing that pushed me permanently away from going back into corporate is a group of former Best Buy ex- executives had uh, started a consulting firm called the Sprosty Network. And they were um, gearing up to launch a startup accelerator program. And, and I tend to think of it, think of Techstars and what they're doing like with Target, but think of what, where does the startup go after Techstars? So it's more of you're ready to move to scale, you've got incremental sales, and you want to get into retail channels. And so they were launching this program called Retail Accelerator. So I've been working on that for a couple of years. Okay, and that's why I'm going to introduce Thong to Seek, because they're a virtual reality company that came through the Retail Accelerator program. So what so, are the ways that you can have a retail virtual reality? I mean, what, 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 what does that mean? Uh, I think it depends on which phase um, which team and which phase we're working at. But if you think about how let's, – let's back it up a little bit. So I think it goes beyond retail. Um, it really goes back to designing experiences. So as organizations think about right, how their brand is going to come across to consumers, there's a very, very lengthy and arduous design process that involves sometimes hundreds of people and then many companies, many stakeholders, and then – also, lots of people making decisions on different pieces. So if you think about like how cars are assembled, like there's parts, there's an assembly line, 
ironically, sometimes experience design works the same way, where you're thinking about, well, how is this environment going to look? What's the lighting? What are all the different products that we're going to put? How are we going to merchandise this? Right? What's the technology that's going to be used? What kind of soundtrack? What kind of soundtrack? Right. And at the end of the day, what's supposed to come out the other end is a cohesive narrative for that consumer in terms of, hey, this is how this is how my experience was. This is how the brand spoke to me. But you know, if you work in corporate, you know that that's not always a smooth process. There's a lot of deliberation. There's a lot of disagreement. And to be honest, in, in my corporate journey, a lot of those decisions weren't made on behalf of the customer. They were made on behalf of politics or because you know somebody thumped their chest and said, this is how it's going to be. Empire builders. Empire builders, right? It's about internal power struggles rather than focusing on the customer themselves. And so something that's been really exciting for us is we now have this tool, this platform, this technology that puts the decision make. Well, I mean, you still need people to make decisions, right? But now you can drive those decisions with data, with real behavior. Like these consumers walk through and they completely missed that sign. They didn't see that sign that you spent $100,000 on, right? Because that wasn't relevant to them. When you start looking at things through the customer's eyes, I think that really changes how decisions are made. So well, That's part of the new design thinking, trying to imagine how the customers view things rather than just the, the owners and makers. Yes. I think that's really interesting from a marketing measurement standpoint as well, or even you know just measurement in terms of impact on your investments, whether it's marketing or communications. Advertising has largely been based on impressions, yeah. which is really a, you know, you know, lick your finger and which way is the wind blowing. It's a guess on how many people might have put their eyeballs on what you did. I mean, that that's putting it more into something more tangible as a measure. You, yeah, don't, know sure. really cool. you don't know their actual sure. experience. Right. That'll be the next thing they'll invent. You know, what's, what's really rich, too, is, you know, you gather this data, you know, you record how users went through. I think the other side that we're looking at, too, is how can this be used as a, a tool to communicate internally, right? Because not everybody delivering on these experiences is connected to the customer. And so what we're really trying to do is, like, how can we bring the entire organization around empathy for the customer? And how can you use that as a, a tool to bring people together? I think that's pretty interesting. That's also going to be interesting in terms of whether or not you are complementing and reinforcing managerial communication or if you're disintermediating it, you know, and kind of cutting them out of the middle. Because, I mean, if you look at internal communications survey results, communication from manager is the most critical and it's usually the worst in terms of a channel to reach employees. I, I think you hit on a great point, which is with technologies like this coming into the workplace, you know, you, you think about who are some of the best leaders that you've worked with and how they've communicated versus who are the managers that you've worked with that have just told people to do. I think when you start introducing things like this into the workplace, it changes, you know, which, which leaders are really going to excel and which ones aren't. Uh, Alok, are there limits to what you can do with virtual reality just because of the law? Uh, you know, it's an interesting. It's interesting to ask that. I mean, the law really hasn't caught up yet to where virtual reality is. I mean, uh, I mean, the one area that we are seeing a lot of activity is patent litigation, right? So, who owns the patents to do what, right? And what there's maybe what three main manufacturers of VR headsets, right? There's the HTC Vive, there's the Oculus VR, there's the Sony VR, right? The headset. I mean. Um, those are the, you know, then obviously there's the Samsung and there's Google, but you know you have only these limited amount of players and 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 there's a lot of overlap between the products, and you know there's questions about well 
who owns that technology? Who came up with it first? Who filed first? Is it you know? There's a lot of legal questions about uh, at least in the patents, you know, the intellectual property area about VR headsets. Now you can talk about product liability work or. You know, my, my favorite story, if we talk about augmented reality, which is slightly different than virtual reality, I mean, everyone remembers Pokemon Go, right? Everyone who has a kid remembers you'd go to a park or, you know, they would walk around with their phone up. Uh, you know, Pokemon Go had a lot of trouble with people getting hurt when they were using the app, right? They would they would walk into the middle of the street and they would fall down. They would get hit by a car. I mean, the question is, if you have this product and, and you're putting this product out there, should you be should you be concerned that people might be hurt using your product? I mean... Um, yeah, it's it's something that people need to consider. I mean, the story that I always use is, is also is, is the Wii, right? Remember, people were throwing their, their Wii remotes through their televisions left and right. And and we didn't really think about it at the time, like, oh, yeah, we should probably put straps on these things. <laughs> um, and, and because, like I said, the law hadn't really caught up to, well, people might be using this motion-sensing technology, and, and they might hurt each other with it. And we're, we're bumping into that type of stuff every day. So we have this experience, again, with the avatars where we put you in somebody else's body. And we have multi-user, which means that I can get into that experience with you. And what we do as a test with people that come in is, like, I'll walk up to you and invade your private space in VR. And in reality, like, I'm in a different room. I'm completely disconnected from you physically. But the fact that you feel uncomfortable right. virtually, does that have implications longer term? And if I reach out, and VR is interesting in the sense that the immersion, it makes your brain think that you're there. If I were to reach out and touch your virtual avatar on the hand, we've had people report that they physically feel that sensation. Mm. Like they wow. feel that sense of presence. And so, you know, we're in this gray unknown space where if somebody harasses you in VR, or makes you feel uncomfortable. A Me Too movement in VR. Right? Wow. How is that going to work? We don't know. Yeah, I mean, this is unfortunate that the law works this way, but sometimes it has to catch up, right, to where technology is, to where society is, and a lot of things. And, and frankly, uh, we're just starting to scratch the surface of, of where those legal limits are. If you, think, if you think about where um, VR headsets are distributed, it's a lot of kids playing games now, too. And so they have access to these social environments with effectively no boundaries, right? So they're interacting virtually with people of all ages. And you go into some of these VR chat rooms and you'll see a lot of behavior where as a, as a parent, you'd be like, okay, um, there needs to be some barriers here. Well, and I mean, and that's, that has to be a continuation. And I'm not, a, I'm the most gaming I do is I have like a game called like two or three dots on my phone. And when I have, when we're landing, I play it. I can't be working. But, I mean, with gaming in general, there's a long, well-documented history of sexual misconduct, sexual harassment, mainly of, of women gamers. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that, I mean, moving into VR, making that a more it takes it to a physical experience, if you will, that's well, that very scary. P- pornographic that's, that's scary. VR, VR, is that happening? You'd think the industry is further ahead than it is, but it isn't. Um, mm. But uh, opportunities and challenges there, too, in different ways. Mm. What about the legal ramifications of taking the same uh, story content? I mean, I was last night they had uh, uh, Gone with the Wind on. What if you did a virtual reality where you could be one of the characters? So then when the actor signs, they have to sign up their rights for, for that, too. What would go on there? I mean, there's still definitely copyright issues, right? I mean, that. I mean, just because an actor waves 
you know, signs into some sort of consent or waiver that says that, you know, I consent to allowing person X to play me, that, well, they don't necessarily own the production rights to the entire work of art, which would be the movie. So you would still have some copyright issues, and we still see that right now in VR, right? Well, let's say someone wanted to watch uh, content come through their VR headset, and, you know, somebody else could say, I want to take that same content, and I want to manipulate it a little bit, right? Like, I want to add my own streaming banner, or I want to change it up. I mean, you're you're getting into some really, you know, weird areas of the law that, that could get you into a little bit of trouble. You know, and so, to some extent, though, a lot of these content publishers want their stuff out there. You know, the, the, the analogy I use is, again, we go back to video gaming. Someone puts out a video game, you can go to YouTube and say, video game review for XYZ, and you'll find someone talking about their video game. But at some point, what point as a product manufacturer or as a content distributor do you worry about that pr- person saying something bad about your product or defaming or libeling your product, right? Like that becomes problematic. And we go back to this VR, you know, so, oh yeah, well, well, you know, maybe I have reservations about what someone might do with my product, right? So there, there are some, again, some legal concerns about mm. uh, what, how much you let people get away with what your, you know, your, your work product. Could, could there be a VR channel that plays different programs and has commercials? Oh, absolutely. And I think advertising in VR is going to be, uh, we're, we're only scratching the surface of the possibilities there. What are they doing now? I mean, I, I'm thinking once again of Kelly, how could you get your dress out there? And- yeah, like, so in when new channels come along, people tend to bring what they know into it. And so you see things like product placement, you see things like, you know, ads sliding in, you see, you know, in a 360 experience. I think the future of advertising in VR is going to be more heavily driven around engagement, right? People imagining themselves using that product because if you're really trying to get somebody to buy a product, you want them to be able to envision that product in their lives. So you'd wear one of these dresses made from abstract art and everyone would come up to you and tell you how I think there's something really interesting about, you know, if, if you think of how uh, what we understand in terms of how women like to shop and um, and certainly there's been the Amazon phenomenon with that. Um, but fit matters. Fit is tantamount. It, 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 it's more important than anything else. Physical fit or physical fit. psychological fit? Well, I, well I, probably a little bit of both. You know, again, it's back to what do you feel good in. Right. And if there, is, if there would be a means, and I'm, I'm sure someone in fashion is working on this, where I'm able to try on something and I can see that it does fit, I'm going to be more likely to place an order because I feel good about how, I, how I'm wearing it. I mean, one of the things we're discussing right now with Alice Riot is offering what we're calling a blank canvas service, where you see the art that we're representing in a particular collection. We then send you some blank garments, and we send you a couple of sizes, kind of like a rent-the-runway, so you're able to try them on before you place your order for the printed version. Um, it would be cool, though, if there would be a means to do that through VR, where you know, there'd be some sort of an interaction with, with our brand where you can, through VR, try on our, our garments and see how they fit and which size works for you before you invest the money because we're, we're, we're a premium price product because we're representing someone's original works of art. Hmm. So that, that's a really compelling idea, and I think women would really go for it. Yeah, that is really compelling, right? Because if people can – I think people sometimes struggle – imagining. They they conceptually think that this is going to be appropriate, but then when they see it, right, like what you don't want to do is have them have buyer's remorse. 
Hmm. I think that's that's been a challenge in retail in general is returns, right? Right. So I think to be able to show people that this is going to work for you and be, demonstrate that, I think that'd make a big difference. Hmm. We need to talk about that. I'm, I'm actually, <laughs> I've had my phone open this whole time. I'm taking notes. Taking notes. The the buyer's remorse, this this always bothers me, is that um, Hollywood, they'll, they'll spend millions and millions on a movie, and it's terrible. I mean, what reality are they in that they can't see what an audience would think of it? They're They're so, well, how can you break through that wall? I think honestly, um, from an economic standpoint, we've we've lived in a society where, you know, in the industrial era, people had to take big risks to get big scale, and we're moving to a society that's moving much more rapidly, is much more agile. You can't take the same big risks and assume that it'll scale in the same way because there's so much, you know, diffusion in the market. So I think the future, I think going back to clothing, is the idea that you can test and learn very quickly. Right. You know, smaller, faster, more rapid, rather than trying to achieve scale immediately. And if you look at where tech companies have gone, this is what they do really, really well. This is why e-commerce is so successful, because they've tested and learned, and then they've scaled, rather than trying to go the other way around. So you guys are in the right business. And pardon me, A-Luck, you're, uh, you're in a law firm, but but you're in a good one. Yeah, I like to think so. <laughs> no, I mean, the, you know, the, the great thing about a firm like the one that I'm at is like we do work with a lot of entrepreneurial businesses and and then, you know, who are mom and pop stores who, who want to figure out a way to, to, you know, be able to get a large law firm to be able to help counsel them into some of these unique areas, right? Like we have businesses that do work in Europe and we're working with GDRP, right? There's not a lot mm-hmm. of law firms in town that understand even what GDRP is. Just for folks that don't know, GDRP is the uh, the near EU regulations for data. So it's nice to be able to work uh, at a large law firm to be able to explain that. Well, at the same time, we have uh, the large companies, and we work with them as well. Okay, so you cover the world, which is what we'll do on future episodes of Think Tank of the Air. Uh, thanks for my guests here. We have uh, Kelly Grayler, Alok Sharma, Thong Nguyen. I'm Steve LeBeau. Also want to thank Dan Cook, our engineer. And this is a partnership with WCCO Radio. I'd like to thank them, too. We'll see you on our next podcast. Thank you for listening to Synapse. Think Tank of the Air. I'm Leo Espinosa. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ucalypt Speed Test Intelligence Data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023.